All right, so we're in Luke chapter 17. We're going to read verses 20 through the end, 37. And you guys, we're getting into some crazy stuff this morning, okay? I just want to give you that forewarning. Like, there's some interesting things that will come up through this text. You may be familiar with the text. You may not. Um, Things that have caused a lot of arguments and division uh, in church history, things that have caused a lot of confusion for people, and things that have even created whole new doctrines and ideas and ideologies of belief. So again, we're praying the Spirit would really guide us through this. And I just want to say, like, some of the things that have been um, misconstrued or some of the things that have been debated over, let's just agree that those are secondary things right off the bat before we even get into them. That following Jesus and Jesus being the one who gives us life and salvation and brings us back into the presence of God, that is primary. That's first and foremost, right? And that's what we believe and we could be in unity in. But we do want to, we do say these things matter and we do want to dive into them and we want to understand them so that it helps lead us to understand God more and to know him better too. Sound good? All right, Luke chapter 17. If you're able to stand with me. And at this point, Jesus has told a ton of parables. And then at the beginning of 17, I encourage you to go back and read, he performed some healings. And he's on his way, making his trek to Jerusalem. And he's passing through towns. And on the way, there's lots of people with him because this is a pilgrimage. All of the Jewish people, if you consider yourself a good Jew especially, you are heading to Jerusalem for the Passover meal. And this is where we find Jesus right now. Traveling on the road, verse 20, and being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see here or there. For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he told the disciples, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the son of man, but you won't see it. They will say to you, see there or see here. Don't follow or run after them. For as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, it is necessary that he suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It'll be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It'll be like that on the day of the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, A man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two will be in one bed. One will be taken. The other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? They asked him. He said to them, 
where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Verses 34 and 35, toward the end there. Those two verses. Out of all those verses we read are what I meant when I said there's been a lot of confusion coming from this. When I was younger, my brothers and I, we used to play this mean prank on each other. Um, We would, one of them would go in the bathroom and we would all take our clothes and lay them in the spot we were standing and run and hide somewhere so when they came out, they would think we had been raptured. You guys know that word, raptured? Uh, By the way, that word rapture actually comes from a Latin word which means to seize or to kidnap. So like God had kidnapped us away from them, right? And so we would take turns playing this prank on each other. In fact, I don't think I'm the only one who's done this because I found some pretty funny things on the old interwebs. So there's a picture, I think, of lots of people doing this type of stuff and playing pranks on each other. There's some videos. Some are kind of funny. Some are pretty lame. But uh, this, was a, this was a big thing when I was growing up, pseudo in the church with my family. And in fact, I would see bumper stickers like this next picture here a lot. Warning, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. <laughs> Did you guys ever see anything like that? Like, you're driving along, and then like, oh, here it is. This is the rapture. Sorry, guys, I'm gone. And then the car's just going to crash through the red light. Um, this idea of the rapture is actually a new, if you didn't know this, this is a new doctrine that was introduced to the church uh, just about 200 years ago. But it was made very, very popular through some different books and movies, including one of my favorites that I watched in high school, The Left Behind movies with good old Kirk Cameron there, which were based off of the series of books. Uh, And maybe if if you are younger than I am, you're more familiar with the Nicolas Cage version, which I I haven't seen, but I I can guess it's just as bad as the Kirk Cameron version. If you like the movie, I apologize. Uh, I don't <laughs> I don't know why Luke Cage of all people or Nicholas Cage was in this movie. Like that doesn't even make sense to me. Okay, so you know, lots of people were starting to really actually like like make this a huge thing and actually make a lot of money off of it. Like those books and those movies made a lot of money. In fact, I saw another person who started a whole business solving a problem that the Rapture had that no one really thought about. It's the rapture hatch. I got a picture of it here. Don't let pesky roofs and ceilings keep you from the loving arms of the Lord. Get a rapture hatch. <laughs> like, can you imagine that? Like, on the day the rapture comes, oh man, like I can't get through the ceiling. Jesus, wait for me. Oh, good thing I installed the rapture hatch. I thought ahead, right? All right, obviously, this is all in good fun. It's jokes, but... This is something that uh, a lot of people would look at these verses, like there's, there's two people in bed on the day of the Lord, like one person's left and one person's gone. Or there's two people working in a field, two women grinding grain, one's left, one's taken away. And this, this bit of scripture has actually been used a lot to talk about and to build up that doctrine of the idea of the rapture. Now again, I want to say this, this is a secondary issue. 
And this is why I'm starting here. It's at the end of the the text we just read. I want to start there because I want to talk about the elephant in the room and I want to get it out of the way so that we can actually get to the real thing Jesus is saying in this. Make sense? And so you could totally believe in the rapture and be a follower of Jesus. I could not believe in the rapture and be a follower of Jesus. Like, let's agree not to get hung up on that, okay? But I do want to say this is something that was introduced about 200 years ago in a faith that is thousands of years old. And when that happens, you want to really examine that carefully, all right, and give it maybe a little extra scrutiny uh, because this word is the unchanging word that we've had all along, right? And if we look at, if you're familiar with the six symbols that we use at Missio, you look at the story of the Bible, which is the true story of the world, then we talk about what happens from creation to restoration, right? And we talk about that at creation, God created this world and he, he came and he walked on it with his creation and he made mankind to be his representative in his image to care for the rest of creation and he had perfect relationship with them. And then something happened. Mankind decided, the first man and woman as our representatives decided, no, 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 we don't want you to be king over us. We want to be our own kings. We don't want you to be in charge over us. We want to decide for ourselves. Maybe you're holding out on us and we can go get something better for ourselves, right? And so that's where our our second symbol of that X comes in, where we talk about rebellion. And so it's not just like a sin, like uh, a lot of times we talk about this part of the story as the fall. It's not like a trip and fall, like, oops, I made a mistake. Sorry, God. Messed everything up now. It's an outright rebellion against the king over all of creation, saying, no, we want the throne. That's what rebellion against God is. And from that point, everything God created good started decaying. Just as God promised, if you do this and not trust me, you will surely die. And so death starts entering in. And what happens from that point on, even though God gives a promise, I will will come and I will rescue you one day, is that we start trying to build up all of our own kingdoms to take the place of this beautiful kingdom God created. If, if we wanted to dethrone God, then we're starting to put other people on the throne. And even through this period, this third symbol we talk about, that forward arrow saying God's pointing us forward to a promise. During this time, God calls us specific people, Abraham, and he makes a nation out of him, Israel. And this people is supposed to be a blessing to the other nations, to show them what living in God's true kingdom looks like and how good that is. And what do they do? God, we want a human king for us. This is what they say to him. And he goes, you have a king. I am your king. And they say, no, 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 we want a human king so that we could be like all the other nations. And eventually God gives them over to their desires. He says, fine, if that's what you want, here you go. And king after king after king for Israel fails to show them what it looks like to follow the true king. And so all throughout the Old Testament, this is what we see is people trying to build up their own kingdoms in place of God's kingdom. And isn't that really what this text is about this morning? If we look at the very first thing in verse 20 that we read, being asked by the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders, when the kingdom of God would come. This is the question, right? So the question is not... God, when is the end of the world coming? Isn't that funny how like I grew up being taught about the rapture and it was seen as Armageddon, end of the world. This is a much better question. When is the world being restored and renewed and made whole? 
Because if we continue through that story, we know that next symbol, that fourth symbol, the cross, which represents the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the true king coming and reclaiming his kingdom takes place. And it's about to take place very soon here in this story we're reading today. And when that takes place, what God does as the true king of the world is he sets in motion the restoration of his kingdom. Not the obliteration of it, but the restoration of his kingdom. And so then we have our next symbol where we're pointing forward. And and that's where we live presently as the church, now empowered by the spirit, as we talked about on this Pentecost Sunday, to live in the realities of God's good kingdom, even in the midst of it being broken. Pointing forward to the day when God would one day return, Jesus would return as the king and bring full restoration to this earth, a renewed heavens and earth. That's the story that we live in. And the reason this matters, the reason this matters is because if the end of that story ended with another X, like the earth is obliterated, but hopefully like we'll be some of the ones plucked out of that first, we'll be saved, then nothing here really matters, does it? Except for your soul, like this inanimate thing where you say a prayer and you're good, right? And that's really how I was brought up within my experience with the church was, you know, taking care of this planet did not matter because it's going to blow up one day, right? Taking care of your own bodies, it didn't matter. Just eat to your heart's content because it's going to be gone one day anyway. You're going to be this ethereal thing floating on clouds, right? But when we get a picture of the God who made himself a physical man in the flesh and who not only went through all of the pains of birth, life, and death, but also rose out of the grave in the flesh, the tomb was empty. His body resurrected. And that's how he lives eternally. Like, that changes everything. I had a conversation one time with a guy who was really struggling to believe this, and I said, if Jesus is living in a flesh body for all of eternity, and you view the flesh as bad, why is it that we all get to float around on clouds in the spirit, and Jesus is stuck in the body? Like, no, 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 the body is a good thing. The physical, is, it's good. God created it, and what did he say at the beginning? This is good. We messed it up when we tried to build our own kingdoms on top of it. And God is coming to restore his kingdom. And if the end of the story is obliteration of it, and God had to come up with a plan B, then sin has been more powerful than Jesus. But the true story is a renewed heaven, renewed earth, where God has the final say. And he says, no, 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 all of this is mine. And I'm claiming it back. That's good news, you guys. And if we see that, here's why it matters. Again, I say that's a secondary thing, but I still want to say it. I still want to preach it because that matters. One, because it's in here. Two, it matters because it affects the way you go about your day. No longer can you say, this doesn't matter. It's going to all one day anyway, right? But you go, no, God cares about this. This is his world. He's coming to restore it. And as a picture of that one day final kingdom where Jesus returns and claims it all, I'm going to show a little bit of what that restoration looks like here and now. And that's what we are called to do as the church in the power of the Spirit. Amen?
All right. That's what we're called to. Those are the last couple verses. Let's get to the other stuff. Because <laughs> I think that has been hijacked by this uh, doctrine that came in just a couple hundred years ago. And I want to look at, no, no, what was Jesus saying thousands of years ago to these people? And what we see is he's got two conversations going on, right? First, it's the Pharisees, the religious leaders who ask him a question, and he answers them. And that part's much shorter. But then it says he turns to his disciples, his followers, and he starts talking to them a little bit deeper about it, okay? So first, he's got the Pharisees, and they say, when is the kingdom of God coming? And this doesn't sound like an antagonistic question, right? Like, usually the Pharisees are trying to capture him in some type of trap with their questions. Maybe they are here, I don't know, but it seems like a pretty straightforward question. When's the kingdom of God coming? If you say you are the Messiah, the rescuer, the king, when's it coming? And if we remember man's history of trying to build human kingdoms over and over again, an important thing to know is that also they thought this is exactly how the kingdom of God would come. It would be a person who would come as a warrior king who would rescue them with military might and power from the oppression of Rome. So this is what they're looking for. When is that happening, Jesus? When are you going to come in with your army? These 12 guys? Like, I don't know. Do you got more? When are you coming in with your army and taking over the Roman Empire? And bringing back this beautiful reign of the kingdom of Israel, sitting on the throne of David once more. And Jesus says, you're looking in the wrong places. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. You're not going to see it like that. It's not going to be like these signs, right? It's not going to be like uh, this physical thing where you go like, oh, okay, now I see that Russia has fallen so that the true kingdom can reign over it. It's not going to be necessarily like that, at least not right now. Jesus says this. He goes, no one's going to say, look here or there, for you see the kingdom of God is in your midst. What's another translation you've heard that before? The kingdom of God is what? Among you. That's another one. At hand. What was it? Within you. Yeah. There's another one that has caused some confusion over the years, right? The kingdom of God is within you. And I, I'm not going to argue that. <laughs> Here's what I'm saying. I, I think Jesus is saying something actually a little bit different right here. If I were to say right now, hey, good morning, everybody. It's a great day. I want you to know we have a celebrity in our midst right now. Are you guys all going to go, I have this celebrity inside of me just waiting to come out. I'm going to be famous one day. No, no, I'm not saying it's in you, right? In our midst. And actually, the original Greek word here, it's an intro, which I think is maybe where the intra word comes from in our language. Like, you're intranet that you use in your job maybe like it's a it's a thing within the infrastructure of your company that word is a placement word it's a spatial placement word which means an object finding its place in and among other objects so we have maverick in our midst today ladies and gentlemen right maverick is not inside of you in your heart Maverick is sitting right there in the middle of all of us, right? And Jesus, I think, is saying this. He's saying, listen, 
you're not going to see it because the kingdom of God is standing right here in front of you talking to you right now. Jesus is the king. He's going, the kingdom is in your midst right now and you're missing it. I don't think he's telling the Pharisees the kingdom of God is inside of you. Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees, right? They're missing it. It's right here, right in front of you, in your midst, and you're looking at all the wrong things. And I just want to challenge us, like, what are we looking to this morning? What are maybe the wrong things we're looking to instead of the true king? Because we've got the same issue. And in fact, conversation two, Jesus turns away from the Pharisees. He starts talking to his own followers in the moment, and he warns them of the same thing. Do not miss it. Don't miss it. This is coming on the heels, we said, of all these parables, these stories Jesus tells the religious leaders. These stories of a person who thinks they've got it all together and they're right before God and they miss out. The older brother, remember that story in the prodigal brothers? And then this other person who seems like, oh, there's no way God's going to accept them and invite them in. And yet, out of humility, they humble themselves. They recognize their need for God to save them, and they get welcomed in. All these stories after stories of saying, don't miss it. Don't miss the kingdom by focusing on what you can do building your own kingdom. And then we see this, actually, in a story that happens in chapter 17. We didn't read it right before this. So if you backed up in your Bibles to verse 11, there's a story there. We read this in our missional community this week. There's a story where as Jesus is traveling between these different towns, between Galilee and Samaria, he meets a group of 10 lepers. These are 10 guys who have this terrible skin disease, like body parts could be falling off of them. That's how bad it was. And you didn't touch these people. You didn't go near these people. You didn't welcome them into your community. That's probably why they're on the outskirts in between these two towns, not in a town, right? And we're told that one of them is a Samaritan. Now, it's interesting. You got Jews and Samaritans who did not associate with each other because Jews thought Samaritans were unclean. They were half-bred Jew and something else, right? And so they didn't associate. But when you got leprosy, and your whole community won't associate with you, and you're now considered unclean too, you might as well hang out with the Samaritan leper too, right? Like sin becomes the great equalizer. You're all in the same boat. You're all in need. You're all dirty. And Jesus comes, and he heals all of them. They ask him, Jesus, heal us. And he goes, go tell the priest. Go present yourself to the priest that you're clean. And on the way, they all got healed. Now, what you would do in that custom is you would go to the priest and you would show yourself as being clean to legally be brought back into standing with the community. That was the custom. That was a, it was a ceremonious ritual, okay? And so the priest was the one who legally said, you're clean, you're healed, you can now reenter society, you can have a job, you can have relationships, you can move back in with your family, so this is what Jesus is saying. Go tell them that. Present yourself so you can go back to your lives. And what happens is all 10 of them are going. All 10 of them get healed on the way. And nine of them keep going to the priest. Nine of them keep going to the priest to go, oh, cool, it worked. Thanks a lot, Jesus. I'm going to go to my life now. And I'm going to rebuild my life now. I'm going to 
get these relationships back together and I'm going to start my business back up and I'm going to get my home in order and I can live my life again. How many of us maybe go through life in relationship with Jesus that way where we go, Jesus, can you do this for me so that I can continue in my life the way I want it to be? And Jesus doesn't become king, he becomes a servant to the kingdom we're building. But one of these lepers, in fact, this is Samaritan, all those parables Jesus told is unfolding in a real life situation right now. One of those lepers comes back. He sees on the way to the priest, he's clean. And instead of going to the priest to do the thing that he was supposed to do in culture to get his life back, he goes, this is incredible. I have to go back and praise God for what has happened. And the miracle, the thing that Jesus did in his life, instead of allowing him to go build his own kingdom, brought him closer to Jesus. And Jesus' response is, you're saved. Your faith has saved you. He was already clean from leprosy, but now he's saved. This is a story. I tell this story. You go, man, why didn't we read that in the text this morning? Listen, I tell this story because Luke is putting all these in a sequential order on purpose. There's so much Jesus did in in real life he could have put in here, but he's telling this sequence of stories to show us, this is leading up to a conversation to show us, don't miss the kingdom. These nine men, they thought it was about getting their life in order here and now, and they went and they took it. This one man who everyone thought There's no way he's going to have a relationship with God. He sees it and he gets it. And it brings him into the kingdom and into relationship with Jesus. So Jesus is now telling these Pharisees, you're missing it. I'm standing right here in front of you. I'm here in your midst. Where the king is, is also his kingdom. And you're missing it. And so he turns now to his disciples, his followers. They've been with him for three years, day in and day out. And he goes, listen, the days are coming. You're going to long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. I'm going to stop right there. We've talked about this a little bit. Why does Jesus like to call himself the Son of Man? I think there's multiple things going on here. The Son of Man just means, like literally, a son of a human. It's a human being. You're a son of man, right? Like we, we all are. Jesus, I think, is doing a couple things. One of the things we talked about before is Jesus, who is the son of God, chose to identify himself as a human by taking on the flesh. And how beautiful is that, that he chooses the name for himself to be the son of man, identifying himself with humanity so that we can be brought back into relationship with God, being called children or sons of God. You see that exchange that happens there? It's beautiful. But there's also something very theological going on here. Something that a good Jewish person who Jesus is hanging out with would have probably caught. And it takes place in Daniel 7. Now, we're going to finish going through Luke over the summer. And then in August, we're going to do some uh, vision stuff. And then in September, we're going to start going through the book of Daniel. And the reason we're going to do that is because Jesus got a lot of what he said from the book of Daniel. And particularly this title he calls himself, the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, 
if you can put that on the screen for me. This is dreams that Daniel's having in Daniel chapter 7. And first, he's, he's had these dreams of these beasts that are rising up. And what he's told later is those beasts, these four beasts represent kingdoms of man. Human kingdoms that have risen up, empires that have taken control over all the earth. And each one of them more oppressive than the last. And it leaves God's people crying out, God, will you come and save us? And this is what we see in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man. What he's saying is I saw someone who looks like a human. But the description we're going to read is like, there's something different about this human. There's something unique and more powerful. I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. This is Elohim, God, and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. This is the same prophecy we are told the angels give when Jesus is is being born, told to Mary, his, his will be an everlasting kingdom. We see in Isaiah, we see all throughout scripture, Jesus is the son of man, he's saying right now to them, whose kingdom will reign forever and it will be a good kingdom and it will destroy all the other kingdoms. For our kids this morning, going through this text, one of the things we said to start with is, start by having a bunch of blocks built up I don't know if they did this or not because it required props. So ask your kids. And if they didn't do it, I'm, I'm not lying. We just probably didn't have blocks. So start with a bunch of blocks built up into like a house or something. Call a couple kids up and then tell them, okay, I want you to use these blocks and I want you to build a car with it or just something different, some other object, right? And then ask them, what was your first step? What did you have to do? And they might say, like, oh, I had to build the wheel first, or I had to build, like, the, the base first. No, 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 what was your very first step? These blocks were constructed into something. First, you had to tear that down, right? You had to destroy that so you can rebuild with those same blocks something new. And this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples now. These kingdoms of humanity need to be torn down so that the true kingdom can be built which will last forever. And this is what he says, verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. They're, they're living their lives like those nine lepers wanted to go do, right? They're building up their kingdoms. And until, he says, the day that Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. God saw, this takes place in Genesis 6, God sees the violence of the whole earth, of all of humanity, and he goes, no. No, I'm tearing that down. I'm going to rebuild something better. And so the flood comes over the earth, and we're told that it, it causes destruction. And you, you see that the earth as it was perishes. But the earth's still there, Right? So what it does is it tears down the structures that sinful rebellion had built up in order to build something new. 
And then he goes on and he says, let me give you another example. Verse 29, or sorry, verse 28. It'll be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, living their lives, building their kingdom, right? He says, but, verse 29, on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Now that piece of land where Sodom was is not obliterated off of the face of the earth and there's a hole there now. Like it's still there, okay? But that fire, what it did is it cleansed and it destroyed this terrible, violent kingdom that had been built up. And so this happens in Genesis 18, I believe. And God comes down and he says, I have heard the cries, the outcries against Sodom for their violence. So I've come to do something about it. This oppressive, violent nation, this kingdom that's been built by man's rebellion, I'm going to tear it down. I'm going to rebuild something else. And this is why I think when we see later on, back to our two confusing verses, 34 and 35, you see that there's one taken out, one remains. And you go, what's going on with that? Does that mean literally like he's plucking them out? His disciples ask him, where? In verse 37, where are they taken? So he, he's given two people. One is left there. One's taken away. And his disciples ask, where? They're not asking where are they left. They're asking where they're taken, right? And he answers with where the corpse is there also the vultures will be gathered. And I believe that what, what I'm seeing here and what seems to make sense with the context of the true story is not that the one that's plucked out is actually the one being raptured up into heaven, but most likely the one that is being removed is the one who is being torn down, destroyed, perishing by the coming of the kingdom. And the one who remains is the one who gets to stay and live in the kingdom. Jesus is saying, listen, I gotta tear all this down. This can't stay, it can't last because it does not fit within the kingdom of God and this all belongs to me. And I'm rebuilding something much better. And you get to be a part of it if, if you remain faithful. Watch, be on the lookout. You get to be a part of it. If you follow me, if you trust me, I'm the king. You can live in my kingdom if you see me as king. You can't live in my kingdom if you're trying to be king yourself and cause a mutiny. You can't live in my kingdom if you're in constant rebellion against the king. And so there will be some who will be destroyed. Just as the water came in and destroyed that kingdom, but it caused new life to grow. Anthony, I loved when you were sharing this morning just about your friend and about, you know what, through that process of loss of life, that process of death, I get to share life with other people. And you, you made this statement, something to the effects of, you said probably way better than me, that death gives way for new life. And that's what we're seeing here. That's what the flood did. That's what the fire raining down in Sodom and Gomorrah did. That's what Jesus is telling us is going to happen when he returns one day. There is going to be a day where the Son of Man comes and he is going to reclaim his kingdom in full. He gave another analogy of this, another parable. He talks about wheat and tares. So there's good wheat growing, and there's tares, which are weeds growing all around it. 
And he says, this is what you do. You wait until the day of harvest. And on the day of harvest, you go and you pluck out all the weeds. And then you have the good wheat left. I've given this analogy before. My backyard is a lot like that. I got tons of weeds growing over my trees. And there was times where I would go and I'd pluck out all the weeds and I'd go, oh, look at that beautiful tree. This last time, last weekend, I went and did that. And I plucked out all these weeds and there's this one beautiful tree. But then when I plucked out the weeds over on this side, I had a dead branch. And all that, those weeds were actually sucking the nutrients from that tree. And I had nothing left there. And I think in a similar way, when Jesus is saying this to his disciples, he says, I want you to look, but listen, don't, don't follow where other people are saying, look over here, look over there. You'll know it when it comes. It's gonna be like flashes of lightning in the sky. It's gonna be that visible to you. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Don't, don't get sucked away by the weeds that are growing around you. Don't get sucked into the kingdom that's around you. Don't miss it. Keep your eyes fixed on the king. And when I'm coming, when I'm coming, you will be one of the ones who gets to remain and stay in a perfected, renewed, restored, whole heavens and earth. A beautiful kingdom that will last forever. That's the news Jesus is bringing. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is in our midst. Will we fix our eyes on him? Pray with me. Father, there's so much in that text this morning, and we pray, God, that anything that came out of my mouth that maybe would add to confusion, you would just strip that away right now. Father, instead that you would root deeply in our hearts the seed of your kingdom, the good news, that that would grow stronger and healthier day by day. Spirit, that you would help us keep our eyes fixed on the King, Jesus. That we would be bringing glory to the Father in all we say and do. That we would live by your power and not get turned aside by the allure of the kingdoms of this day, of this world. But God, that we would see a true and better kingdom coming. And that we would not miss that. May we be citizens of your kingdom. And God, not just for our own sake, but may we also be heralds of your kingdom, messengers going out and inviting others in, bringing them in, so that they too can dwell eternally with you, our good and righteous king. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.